Okay, Genesis 3. There is so much in this chapter. Um, I'm, I'm going to try to remember all my little notes as we go through this. We saw the macro level of creation. Uh, and in Genesis 2, we saw the micro level as far as uh, humans were concerned in God's creation. Uh, and now we see in Genesis 3, so we saw the origin of the universe and everything God created. And then we saw the origin of man and woman, the origin of marriage. Uh, and now in Genesis 3, we see the origin of sin uh, and the fall. Uh, and um, we see the first uh, evangelistic message about uh, Jesus and him conquering the evil one. It's called the, 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 the Proto-Evangelion. The, the first evangelical message is all in this is, is in chapter three. Uh, and so anyway, let's get into it. There's, I'm going to stop as we go through it in different places. Chapter three. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Let's just look at verse one. Um, have you ever wondered... How does a serpent talk? No. No? Um, there's other instances post-fall of animals speaking. Um, th- there are some who stipulate that pre-fall, the animals could communicate with humans and humans could communicate with animals. And the division of that came after this I don't know if I buy it, uh, but that's what some would suggest. Uh, The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. A lot of people confuse the serpent with the devil. And I say confuse because the serpent wasn't the devil, but the devil inhabited the serpent. So um, for whatever reason, pre-fall... The serpent, whatever the serpent was, we know it now as a snake. But the pre-fall snake or the serpent was, um, the, the Hebrew says crafty. It's understood as um, almost whimsical, intelligent, beautiful, um, as well as what we would think of as crafty. But it wasn't necessarily the serpent in itself that made it so. The devil somehow inhabited it um, and used it as the vehicle through which to tempt Eve and Adam. It's interesting that this we know this is referring to the devil, although it never says the devil, but we know it's referring to the devil by going to the end of the book in Revelation 12. In Revelation 12, it talks about the dragon, the red dragon, who was from the beginning, who is the serpent, the devil. And so Revelation 12 tells us that that Genesis 3 is talking about the devil. Well, if you know the story, you know that the, the curse of God upon the serpent is that it would slither on its belly. So before this happened, it didn't slither on its belly. It was regal. It was, it was whimsical. It was magical almost. And it's referred to as the snake and the dragon in Revelation 12. And so there's some who would say what it could have looked like before the fall was what we look, think of as a dragon. Because it wasn't just on its belly. 
that obviously had ways to manipulate through the earth without slithering on his belly. And so it's either legs or wings because it's on the land. Could be both. And if you think about it, if you have the idea of a circle, you have to have the idea. You have to have a circle out there somewhere to have the idea of a circle. Does that make sense? Yeah. Huh. And so, if we have the idea of a dragon, there has to that that idea had to come from somewhere. So we don't know exactly what this pre-fall serpent was, what it looked like. All we know is that it was. Uh, and in one way or another, the devil inhabited it and used it as its mouthpiece. None of that is important. What's important is what the devil did, the serpent did. And he said to Eve, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Was that God's command? What was God's command? Eat from that tree. You cannot eat, eat from the you can eat from every one of them except that one. <clears throat> the tactic of the devil, <clears throat> first of all, is to distort God's word. That's his tactic from day one. All he did was distort what God said. And that's what he does to us all the time. He just tries to, to, to distort what God said. Um. To, to make it um, confusing, to make you ask questions about it. His first tactic is to distort what God says so that he can do his second tactic, which is to convince us that we can't understand what God said. Did he really say that? You sure you heard him right? What, what did he really say? What does it mean in the Hebrew? You know what I'm saying? Like, what's it mean in the, what is he really getting at? The thing we have to say, we have to understand, is that God's pretty good at saying what he means and meaning what he says. He, he's, he's, he's pretty adept at that. Uh, and so, whenever we open the Bible, we have to go to it as the truth and realize that because of the Holy Spirit, we can understand it. It's not that difficult. Now, there will always be things we don't understand, but as, um, as Mark Twain once said, it's not what I don't understand about the Bible that bothers me, it's what I do understand about the Bible that bothers me. We know enough about the Bible, we know enough about God, we know enough about the Bible to spend the rest of our lives just doing what we know. Um, so so don't, don't let the Word of God get distorted, it... it, it it says what it says, and it means what it says. Uh, and don't think that it's so profound that you cannot understand it. You can. There will always be stuff for every one of us that we just don't know. But those things we just don't know probably aren't that crucial right now. We know enough. Um, but that's the, that's the tactic of the Bible, uh, of the devil. The interesting thing to me is, um, verse 2, The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees of the garden. But God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. The first thing that we have to realize is that why is Eve having a discussion with the devil? That we do this all the time. We entertain evil. We flirt with and entertain things that are contrary to God's word. 
And it's exactly what Eve was doing. Um, and, and, and one of the lessons that I learned right from the front here is I need to make sure I'm not dancing with the devil. I, not entertaining evil. It's so easy to do. And every time we do, we get into trouble. The only thing, and I've heard people pray against the devil and pray against the demons and all this stuff. I don't see that anywhere in Scripture. I think we're on really dangerous ground when we use prayer to do anything other than talk to God. I I don't see that in Scripture. The only thing I see in Scripture when anybody addressed the evil one was the Lord rebuke you and then be done with it. And so we got to be real careful with how much Christians in Christian settings flirt with the devil. He's not one to be trifled with. And she says to the serpent, we may eat fruit from you in the trees of the garden. But God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it or you will die. What's the problem with her response? Exactly, Brenda. He never said, don't touch it. He said, don't eat of it. Um... When the devil wants to distort and minimize God's word, just as deadly is adding to God's word. And we have to be very, very careful because this is what religion does and this is what Christians do. We love to add to God's commands. Whenever we add to what God said, that's legalism. God said this, but make sure you also don't dot, 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 dot. That's legalism. Uh, That leads to really heavy-handed religion. The root word of religion is to bind. And anytime you add things to God's commands, you're binding yourself to a set of behavior that goes beyond what God has said. And we have to be very careful about that. Um... When we tend toward legalism, adding stipulations to the commands of God, we end up either in bondage, in bitterness, or in backsliding. We end up in bondage because we tie ourselves up with all of these religious externals, which is exactly what Jesus said when he said, Are any of you weary and heavy laden? Come to me. And I'll give you rest because you're so overwhelmed with all of these extra religious rules that were never a part of God's uh, economy. So it either leads to bondage or at least to bitterness. Well-meaning churches and well-meaning parents have added a lot to the simple commands of God for their parishioners or their children in an effort to protect them. And inevitably, Neither the parishioner nor the child can live up to all the extra barriers around their lives. And it just makes them bitter. And that's why we hear so many people say, I like Jesus, I don't like religion. Because what they're saying is, I don't like all these extra rules that you're leveling against me. Like, when did it become so laborious? So, when we add, God did say don't eat it, and he said don't even touch it. When we add that... It either leads to bondage, to bitterness, or to backsliding. Backsliding is when you're like, you know what? Forget it. I can't obey it all anyway. Why even try? I mean, how many have walked away from the church 
Because the only their only experience was failure, failure, failure. Not not failure in regards to Jesus and mercy and grace, but failure to all the religious rules. I'm done. And so we have to be very, very careful when we add things to it. God's simple instruction is enough. There's no need to add to it. Now, here's, here's the caveat. <clears throat> if we want to add parameters to our own lives, don't even touch it. That's fine. But let's just be clear that that did not come from God. So if Eve said, God said, don't eat it. For me, I don't even want to go near it because I know me. Great, Eve. Great. <coughs> that's, very, that's called wisdom. But to say, God said, don't, and he said, don't even touch it. Just keep your dirty hands away from it. Well, that, that's, that's deadly. So it, God's, here's the thing. God's command to Adam and Eve in the garden was for their liberation. You're free. Eat everything. Not this one, but everything. It's li- you're liberated. Have at it. Knock yourself out. Eve's stipulation led to incarceration, bondage to the extra rules. And whenever we add, thus saith the Lord, to things that God hasn't said, all we're doing, it's not protection anymore, it's incarceration. And when we level that against our kids, when we level that against parishioners, when we level that against each other, all it does is is incarcerate people to religious bondage. And that's just as deadly as, as, as limiting or, or, or lessening God's word like the devil did. Because it all leads us away from God's word and the simplicity and the purity of faith in what he has said and letting that be enough. Paul will say, I'm going to read this for you in Romans 14. Romans 14, 1 and 2. Paul said, Accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. One man's faith allows him to eat everything. That's strong faith. But but another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. Stays away from, doesn't even touch. Food that's been sacrificed to idols. Food that's been bought in the marketplace. Food with it. And so Paul says those with strong faith (coughs) have the freedom to live with great liberty. Those with weak faith have to put all these barriers and boundaries around their lives to make sure they don't even go near that which God said don't eat. And Paul says don't pass judgment on either of them. If you have weak faith and eating all these rules so you don't even go near the tree, great. That's between you and God. If you have strong faith and live in the grace of God and go climb the tree but not eat the fruit, fantastic, whatever. Knock yourself out. The danger we get into is when, but, but, but God said, do this extra and this extra and this extra. Uh, and, and that's what religion always does. It is enough to abide by God's boundaries, no more and no less. And so Eve, and it's interesting, 
Eve, I, I get this picture of Eve that she's just one of those that, well, they asked a question. I'm going to respond. Mm-hmm. It's a really great lesson sometimes to, to hear the words of lawyers. Don't answer questions that they didn't ask. And just because someone asks you a question doesn't mean they're entitled to an answer. Just because you asked me a question doesn't mean that, <laughs> that you deserve to hear my answer. Like there are some people in some scenarios you just don't even engage in. You know, I had never thought about this before, but the first thing that I would have said if I were her is, what, you're talking. But she's, I mean, it was so like normal. So maybe those people are right. The animals talked all the time and this was, I mean, because I mean, that's pretty stunning. To us, it very much is. And she's just, you know. The interesting thing wow. is that she has already made up her mind to go to, to add to what God has said. Mm-hmm. And we have to be very careful about mm-hmm. that. And I understand sometimes it's out of our own self-protection or our desire to protect someone else. I understand that. But when it comes across as the Lord has also added, let me just tell you what he also meant and add to it. Mm-hmm. All that is is legalism. And that will chase you away from God as much as lessening his word it will. Um, and scripture tells us, don't add nor take away from this. Not one little jot or tittle. Those are the smallest little strokes in the alphabet. Like, don't, it's, it's enough. If God wanted to say something more, he would have said something more. Uh, verse 4 and 5. Uh, this is the devil talking. And you will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Well, they already knew good. I mean, the garden was perfect. And they had each other. They already knew good. And so when he says you'll know good and evil, they already knew good. What was the only thing they could learn by doing this? Evil. The only thing we gain when we dance with the devil is evil. Nothing good comes from it. Um, And what the devil's doing here, he's already um, tried to, he's already, he didn't try, he did. he's, He's already distorted God's word. And then he's convinced us that we can't understand God's word. And now in this Verse four and five, <clears throat> he tries to convince them her that God's ways aren't the best ways. Like there's a better way. I know what God has said. You know what God said, mm-hmm. but it's not really the best. If you just fudge on this a little bit, the outcome's going to be better than the outcome you have right now. That's what the devil's saying, and that's what he does to us all the time. We know what God has said. We know what he said about purity. We know what he said about devotion. We know what he said about finances. We know what he said about dating and marriage. We know what he said. But every one of us has that voice. Yeah, but if I do it this way, I'll get something better than what I got right now trying to follow his way. And, and that's what the devil is telling Eve. And so, so the way the devil works, and he has he's not changed his status. He gets us first to question God's word and then to question God's ways. That's what he did with Eve. 
Uh, and then he challenges the goodness of God. Because if he's really good, he would let you eat this. And then he challenges the love of God. If he really loved you, why would he withhold this from you? And the invitation of God is changed into a prohibition from God. And this is what we have to be careful. God gave them invitation to the whole garden. And the only thing that the devil focuses on is the prohibition. And this is what he does to us all the time. He's opened up so much for us. And most of the time, especially when we're younger and the young people coming up, this is the hardest thing for them to do. The only thing they can focus on is the prohibitions and what they can't do and what we don't have. But this is the way of the evil one. He's always done this. He will always do this. This is just what he does. And it's so interesting to me that every generation has to learn it for themselves. Right? Right. Doesn't matter what our parents told us. If they were told us all this, we would have said, yeah, whatever. Let me try it myself. And we'll learn it and tell our kids. And our kids will say what? Yeah, whatever. Let me try it myself. And then they'll learn it. And they'll tell their kids. And their kids will say what? Yeah, whatever. I'm going to try it myself. And the devil's tactics will never change. They're all, it's always the same thing. <clears throat> Verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for getting wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. First John 2.16 says that all sin boils down to three things. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And that's exactly what she says. The lust of the flesh, it is tasty. The lust of the eyes, this looks good. And the pride of life. You mean I could be smarter than everybody else? This is, every sin boils down to those three things. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the, and the boastful pride of life. And that's exactly where she is. And she took some and ate it. And she gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate it. Let me just go through this. There's something I want to get to. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. And they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. It's interesting that before this point they didn't know they were naked. Um, Because there was no... Embarrassment. There's no shame. And the moment sin entered the world, shame entered. And so in order, realizing their nakedness, and it wasn't just their physical nakedness, it was their entire body, their, their entire being was exposed. Um, and they sewed fig leaves together. Now, if you know anything about fig trees, the leaves are pretty itchy and uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah, they're big. Yeah, they're big. Wasn't a good choice. Was not a good choice. And whenever we try to cover our own sin and shame, it is very awkward and very uncomfortable and not a good choice. Um, And all our attempts to cover our sin are inadequate and rough. It just doesn't work. It just doesn't work, no matter how hard we try. And so, they're sitting there in their discomfort and shame. Verse 8, 
The man, uh, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. This is interesting. They heard God. They knew where God was. And the implication is this was a regular, everyday thing, that God would come in the cool of the day, and they would just walk and talk and have fellowship together. So they knew where God was, would be. They knew he was waiting for them. They heard him, <clears throat> and they hid. They rejected their personal time with God. They said, I have a chance right now to spend time with God. I think I'll hide and do something different. And it's easy to find fault with them. However, how many times do we have an opportunity to be with God? And we either got to get out the house, I got to finish a project, or I'm not going to church. Or Bible study. Just all these excuses, right? This has been man's problem since the beginning. The other thing that's interesting to me is where were they hiding? In the trees of the garden. The trees were God's provision and blessing for them, right? It was his provision for them. It was his blessing. And so they retreat to his blessings in order to not spend time with him. Well, you know, God's really given me the opportunity to spend time at my beach house. And so we're going to be there instead of, I'm going to retreat to the blessing God has given me and not spend time with him. You understand? God's blessed me with a ton of money. So, I'm, you know, I'm going to buy me a new car. I'm going to get a better. I'm going to remodel this. I'm going to remodel that. Tithe? No. To, to, to hide our, to withhold ourselves from God in the midst of his blessing is a double slap to his face. It's the, it's the loving kindness of God, the Bible says, that should lead us to repentance. So I should look around and say, God, after all you've done, all you've given me, what, how can I, be, what do you, how can I better serve her? What can I do? How can I, what can I give to you? You've been so good to me, right? But we, like Adam and Eve, often at times use the blessings of God to hide from him and neglect him. And it's just a double slap in his face. Verse 9, but the Lord God called to the man, where are you? It's the first time God ever asked a question in the Bible. It's interesting to me um, that God's first question to man is, where are you? He's seeking us. Not because he doesn't know where we are, but because he want, it's because he wants us to admit that we're hiding from him. And when God asked Adam, where are you? It's not that he was mad. It was like, where are you? Get out here. <laughs> if you had kids, you know how that goes. Um, but it was a loving father because he wanted Adam to admit, I'm sorry, Pop. I just, I messed up and I'm scared. I'm it wasn't an overhanded, like, 
I'm going to whoop you right now. Mm-hmm. Wait till your mother gets home. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, he said, where are you? In verse 10, he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was <laughs> naked, so I hid. You know, it's always when we don't understand the heart of the Father that we get fearful. This, this, this is why um, Mephibosheth was lame in both his feet when King Saul died and David took over. Um, Mephibosheth was a little boy and his caretaker heard that the new king had come on the throne, David, who was a picture of Christ, figured that the new king would do away with the old king's relatives and 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 and. and And so hearing that David was king, she picked up Mephibosheth and ran and dropped him. And he was lame in both feet. David was looking for Mephibosheth, not so that he could harm him, but so he could bless him. But when you don't understand the heart of the king, it causes you to fear him and run away from him. And that's exactly, it it started in the garden. I heard you. I thought you were going to be, because what did he, God told him, if the, the moment you eat of this, you'll die, right? That was the command. And so they eat of it. They hear God. He says they're afraid. What are they afraid of? They're afraid. Well, here, comes, here comes a hammer. They think God is this heavy handed. You're done now. So they don't understand his heart. And they, and they, every time we don't understand the heart of God, we're fearful. And it's true in every element of life, in every season of life. You don't understand his heart. Now I'm, now I'm scared. Uh, and it's exactly what happens to them. <clears throat> um, I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Um, so he's feeling ashamed. Sin always does that. It's interesting. It, who who was God questioning here? Adam. Adam. Who ate first? Mm-hmm. Who was God calling account? Adam. He told Adam. Don't lose this. Yeah. Verse eleven, and he said, who, "God said, who told you you were naked?" Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Of course, he knew. He wanted Adam to admit what he had done. The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. There's a couple things going on here. Um, God wants Adam to confess his disobedience. And God wants us to confess our disobedience. Why? Why does God want us to confess our sin? To restoration. Restoration? Let me suggest something to you. God wants us to confess our sin. If we're Christian, God wants us to confess our sin. It has nothing to do with forgiveness. He's already taken care of that on the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, he is forgiven. It's already paid for. The debt is paid. The debt's canceled. So why do you have to keep coming back asking him to cancel a debt that's already been canceled? 
He asks us to confess our sin, not for forgiveness now. Because that, that's been settled. He asks us to confess our sin now because it keeps us in a state of humility and repentance. Not God, I, I sin, please forgive me. He says, I, I, I already did. The blood of my son has already taken care of that. You're already covered by that. Your sins are forgiven. But I want you to keep coming to me, not so I can shame you or destroy you, but so that your heart realizes your disobedience. So it leads you to repentance. Anytime I can stand before God and not in just this kind of, I'm sorry for I messed up, but have an honest conversation with God about my failure to follow him and to be obedient. It starts to break the grip of that sin on my life. That I realize who I am. I realize what God has done. That I stand before him forgiven. And that I'm humble and submissive with a pliable heart to keep coming back saying, Father, thank you for your forgiveness. Continue changing my heart. Does that make make sense? And so one of the things we have to learn just theologically is when it is time to confess and, and repent, it's not so that we will be forgiven. That is done. It's so that our hearts remain pliable and soft and repentant before the Father. If one hasn't accepted Jesus as their Savior, then they confess sin for forgiveness. Once they accept Jesus as their Savior, that forgiveness that has already been um, put in the bank is now leveled against their account. So their account is clear forever. Now, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So after we accept Christ, the prayer of confession is not, please forgive me. God says, I already did. What do you not understand about the breadth and power and magnitude of my son's death? It's already done. But you need to keep coming to me in confession of sin so that your heart stays pliable and soft and you stay in a position of repentance. And then he says, of course, you know, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit of the tree and I ate it. It's easy to jump on him for the blame game and she will do the same thing. But I do appreciate the fact he blames her and then he almost blames God by implication. Right? And, and I get that. But I do appreciate the fact that he says, and I ate it. He just admits it. It's interesting that in that statement, he says, I chose to be disobedient. This is a vast difference between Adam and Eve, and this is why Adam is held to account for it. We'll look at it in just a minute. Then the Lord said to the woman, verse 13, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Eve was deceived. She was tricked. Um, And the scripture will tell us later 
that the woman was weaker in this because she was deceived. She was fooled. She had good intentions because she was fooled because she wanted a greater spiritual experience. The knowledge of good and evil. She wanted wisdom. She was just fooled in how to get it. So she was deceived. And she says, the serpent deceived me. Adam doesn't have that excuse. And we will see later, God says, because you listened to your wife. You weren't fooled. You chose. And we'll get to that in a minute. But look at what he said. And then so verse 30. So the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this. Now, what did God say to Adam? What did he say? Just previous, when after the fall. Who told you? Where are you? I hid in the garden because I was naked. Who told you you were naked? Mm-hmm. Have you eaten from the tree? Right? And then what did he ask Eve? What did you do? Because he wanted her to repent. What does he say to the serpent? Where's the question to the serpent? No question. Do you know why? God doesn't have to ask the devil a question because the devil is the father of lies. He knows he's going to lie to him. He says, I'm not going to bother talking to you. I don't need to know your opinion. I don't need to know your thoughts on this. He just jumps right to the curse. Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. Now watch this, verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. That word offspring, does any of your Bibles have a different word than than offspring? Or seed. Seed. Okay. So I've talked about this before. You guys have heard it. When a man and a woman have a baby, who brings the seed to that equation? The man. And here, God says, her seed. That doesn't work biologically. So this is the proto-evangelicon right here. The first statement of the good news of the gospel. Your seed, Eve, will be Jesus. That's what he's saying. This supernatural seed. Women don't bring seed to the equation. This will be a supernatural act of God as Jesus was in Mary. So this is a prophetic statement. The first statement of the gospel is this right here. Your seed and, and her seed. And so, and so as this is going down, God is proclaiming right here salvation. The moment sin entered the world, so did the plan of God. There's no break in time frame here. God didn't say, I'm going to let you sit in this for a little bit. The moment sin entered the world, so did God's plan of salvation. Immediately. Not only did God's plan of salvation immediately be proclaimed, but so did the destruction and the end of the devil. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. 
With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. There's a lot going on in that little statement there. Not only does he say, women, when you have babies, it's going to be painful. That's not the only thing he's saying there, though he is saying that. And it's just interesting when you look at nature, it seems as though a human woman has more pain in childbirth than the animals do. But what is actually being said here as well, he will increase your pains in raising children. And you moms know how much your heart breaks for your children in raising them. And our dad's hearts are different. Not that it's unloving at all. It's very protective and, and should be very demanding, appropriately so. But it's usually the moms whose hearts yearn and break and are heavy laden. Usually so. Increase your pains in raising kids. Would you mom say that's accurate? Yeah. Thanks, Eve. It should be easy and joyful. But this is why it's so hard. This is why it's so hard for you moms. This is why you stay up late worried about your kids. You wonder how their future is going to go, who they're going to marry, if they're going to walk with the Lord, if they're not, if they're going to be okay, if they're going to be on the street. You know, just all those things that you play out in your heads. And this is why it's easier for husbands to say, don't worry about it. It's going to be fine. Like it'll get be bumpy, but hell, I made it. They'll be all right. It's just going to be more difficult. But notice what it says too. Your desire will be for your husband and he will roll over you. That word desire, it doesn't mean that you will, it doesn't just mean that you will want him in a husband-wife way. That word desire means to master. It, it means, it means you, you will desire to master them. You will desire to have them. It's the same word that will be used in uh, verse 7 of chapter 4 in God talking to Cain. But if you do not do what is right, verse 7, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. It's the same word used of Eve. And so what God is saying here is that women, it's going to be painful to have babies. It'll be painful to raise them. And what will make this whole thing more difficult is you will want to rule over your husband. You will continually fight back against his leadership. And whenever this word submission comes up, you're going to piss and moan about it because you don't trust it. And then God says, but he will rule over you. So there's going to be this constant fight in marriage. <coughs> who's leading and who's submitting? And now, rightfully so, biblically so, there's a mutual submission to each other. And there's a mutual communication. And, and, and what about this? What about that? Give and take, push and pull. But when it comes down to it, the wife will have the desire to master her husband Biblically, she must submit to his leadership if one says A and one says B. And that's the struggle of marriage. Right? But now watch this. 
to Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and dust you will return. Not a great prognosis for the future for us guys. But understand what he's saying. Eve was fooled. Adam, you chose. Adam bears the responsibility for the sin of the world. That's why it says, through one man sin entered the world, through the, another man salvation came, right? There was Adam, the first Adam, and there was Jesus, the second Adam. This is why it's not leveled against Eve. She was deceived. This is why it's leveled against man, because it was a decision. And I see this still. I've seen it in a staff person here. When the wife wanders, they walk away from God and follow the wife. That's just what Adam did with Eve. I am convinced that if Adam would have said, Eve, you done dropped the ball, girl. I'm staying with God. And we'll see how he chooses to work this thing out. I'm convinced that God would have worked it out somehow. But Adam said, if I have to choose between God and you, hmm, I'm choosing you. And sin entered the world. And we have to be very careful. Um... Because you listened to your wife about the tree and didn't do what I command. You came from dust, you're going to turn back to dust. This is the important part right here. Verse 20. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all living. Before this, Adam gave this creature a name. And he named her what? Woman. Adam is Ish. Woman is Ishah. Because it means came out of man. So before this, Adam, it's almost this attitude. Woman, you came out of me. You're my helper. You're my completer. Let's just understand, though, the hierarchy here. You're woman. You came out of me. All this goes down. Sin enters the world. This prophecy of her seed will be the redemption and salvation of everything that's broken. And now he says, you will be Eve. Kasha, I think, is the Hebrew word, which means the mother of all the living. Was she the mother of any living at this point? No. This was a prophecy. Through what will live inside of you, will be the seed of you that will be the redemption and salvation, God's plan to set all things right again. She was not the mother of the living, but she would become that. And the, the one that she would become was the mother of God's plan of salvation, the seed 
that would birth into the world God's plan of salvation and redemption and reconciliation of all things. And I think this is the point that changed for Adam, that he realized in this woman, in this Eve, resides the plan of God. And that is a lesson that every husband and man must learn about their wives and about treating women with such great tenderness and such great respect and such great honor because out of her will come God's plan of salvation and redemption. And so in marriage is a picture of that, Christ and his church. And so husbands, we must never take our wives lightly, take them for granted. We must always treat them with great tenderness and respect and honor because God chose her to be the bearer of his plan. We better not ever treat them harshly. Right? Hmm. And this is what God says all through Scripture. Go to the book of Ephesians. This is how we're to treat each other. Verse 21, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, uh, and he clothed them. And the Lord said, The man uh, has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand or to take from the tree of life and eat it and live forever. So God says those fig leaves, y'all are silly. Um, the only thing that covers sin is blood. And so he kills some animal and makes garments. We have no idea what that was, what animal that was. I like to think of it in terms of a lamb. All through scripture, a lamb plays the role. In Genesis, if, if this is a lamb that was slain, the slain lamb covers this is the covering for the individual in exodus the slain lamb is the covering for the family the doorpost of the house in leviticus the slain lamb is the covering for the nation yom kippur and in john the slain lamb is the covering of the world behold the lamb of god which takes away the sin of the world and so the blood of the lamb covers the sin of the person the family the nation and the Lord forgot to love the world. So I can't prove it to you, but I like to think of it as a lamb that's blood was shed for the covering of their sin and shame and nakedness. And then God said, he's become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take hold of the tree of life. He will live forever. What's the problem with him living forever now? The evil part would live forever. Exactly. He's in a sinful state. So God doesn't want humanity to live forever in a sinful state. There has to be redemption. It only comes through death. And this is one of the reasons why, and I know it's hard. Some of you know to a much deeper degree than I. But death is the thing that is the entry door to life and liberation. If we just continue living, 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 living in a state of sin, and, and can you imagine how wretched our bodies would be after 2,000 years of being alive? It, it, it just living in a perpetual state of 
struggle and sin and decay? So I need to protect you all from that. And to protect you from it, I'm not going to let you live forever. And I am going to redeem you, but it's going to come through this thing called death. But it's going to be great. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground for which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. That word cherubim, that's an angel. And whenever there's a Hebrew word that ends, it's a personal word uh, that ends in I am, that means it's plural. So these were multiple angels, at least two. Okay, at least two angels. Um, and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to truth. I don't know if the angels held the sword. It was just a sword flashing in front of them, but there was a sword there to guard the way back to the tree of life. Why did God have to use multiple angels to protect the way to the tree of life? One angel would have been sufficient to keep humanity out. You go to 1 Kings... And one angel slaughtered in one night's time 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. One angel would have been plenty. Multiple angels with the flaming sword. Why? Because the serpent, maybe? Yeah, who else had been in the garden? The devil. And if the devil got back to the tree of life, then he lives forever? You understand what I'm saying? And so God says, I'm going to end this thing one day. And I'm going to make sure, devil, that you are coming to an end. Your authority's been broken. I've already pronounced your judgment. There's, you cannot get out of this. Please understand this. The only authority the devil has over any of God's people is the authority of sin. And that's already been taken care of. So the devil has no authority over any of God's people. Any. So we have no reason to doubt his word. We have no reason to doubt his way. We have no reason to, to, to challenge his love or his goodness. Everything has been settled in chapter 3. Everything has been set. And after chapter 3, it's just a fleshing out in real time of the completion of everything that God has done in this chapter. It's all done. I'm five minutes over. Wow. That's chapter three. There, there, wow. there was so much here we could talk about. We could spend weeks going over this. Wow. It, it, this is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible because this is where <coughs> stuff starts and the proclamation and pronunciation of the finalization of all things has been set in chapter three. Now we just get to see how it plays out. And that's that's the that's the rest of scripture. So that's chapter.